It is good to be back after a couple weeks away. Um, if you have your Bible with you or you want to grab the one in front, in front of you, there may be one in the chair in front of you, open it up to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 is the text we're going to consider this morning. Um, last week, Pastor Brian preached to us from Psalm 23, and I heard someone say this week that Psalm 23 is sort of like the greatest hit of the Bible. If, you're, if you think in musical terms, it's, it's the one that gets all the radio airplay that, that all of, any of us could sing, so to speak, whether we're familiar with church or not. If you've ever been to a funeral or seen a funeral on TV, chances are Psalm 23 has been read. It's familiar. It's, in some ways, it's a part of our cultural language, um, the, the corporate speak that we use with one another. Psalm 88 is not that. Uh, Psalm 88 is a little bit more like, if, if you can remember back in the days where we had to flip your tape or flip your album to hear the, the B-side, Psalm 88 is definitely on the B-side, probably buried somewhere near the end of the album, but not the last song, because the last song is always memorable, right? But it's somewhere in there, in that mix. Uh, preacher, famous preacher David Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in London in the mid part of the 20th century. He once described the Psalms this way. He said, the Psalms are the inspired prayer and praise book of God's people. They're the, they're the collection of poetry that's given to the people of God to give words to our emotions, to give words to our experiences, our thoughts, and our feelings. They were intended to be prayed and sung and read over and over and over again. It's partially why we've approached them the last several summers um, from the pulpit here at Manhattan Press. But Lloyd-Jones went on to say this as well. He said, they are revelations of truth, not abstractly, but in terms of human experience. The truth revealed is wrought into the emotions, desires, and sufferings of the people of God by the circumstances through which they pass. <clears throat> I'm going to read Psalm 88 for you in just a minute, and, but I want you to pay attention to those realities, that it doesn't describe a world that is separate from our world, a world that is other, that is distant. You see, the Psalms were written, as Lloyd-Jones says, in terms of human experience. They are truth, truth revealed by God himself to us to give explanation to our experience. But they are firmly rooted and grounded in life on this earth as we live it. So as I read, I want you to pay attention to the emotion that you hear, or the, the, the emotion you may not hear that you expect to hear, the confidence or lack thereof, the circumstances as they are described. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 88, as I read to us together. Please follow along if you're able. And just for context, I'm going to read, there's a heading that's probably printed there as well. I'm going to read that as well. Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leonath, a maskil of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? 
Do, you de do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in this limited land of the forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you, O Lord. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath is swept over me. Your dreadful, your dread, your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on you on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's ask the Lord to bless this reading of his word. Pray with me. Father in heaven, these words are weighty. We feel, some of us feel, the, the weight of them even more stronger than others of us. Father, we ask that you would send out your light and your truth this morning, that your spirit would blow through this place, that our eyes would be opened to understand the truth that lies here, that you would give us clarity of thought, word, and action. Father, we pray that you would take us to the place where you dwell, the place where you are, that we might know you, by the work of your spirit, through the work of your son, we might be changed. In Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen. When I was little, I had an interesting relationship with the dark. A relationship with something like this. I, I, I don't know that I would say, at least I don't think I would say at the time at, at any way, that I was scared of the dark. But I can remember even from a young age, rooming with one of my older brothers, when I was put to bed earlier, because he was a bit older than me, when I was put to bed by myself, I didn't want to be in a, in a room enclosed in darkness. And so I bargained with my parents, how much light could we let into the room, and I convinced them that I would still fall asleep at the right time. And so what, the, the, where we ended up compromising on was that the door would stay just ever so cracked, and the hall light outside my door would stay on to let a beam of light through. Most of the time, that was enough. As I got older, of course, I eventually outgrew it, right? We hope, anyway. But you know what that feeling is, right? To, to, be, to be in the dark, to be confused, to be frustrated, to be scared, to be fearful. To need even the littlest glint of light coming through the doorway to let you know that everything's going to be okay. The other thing that I, that I realized and that I still remember at this point in time is that the other thing that would bring comfort in those moments, it wasn't just the... the little bit of light shining through the crack in the doorway, but it was the sounds that I could hear. Because as a, as a little child, I was concerned that I was alone, because I couldn't see anybody, and I was in this room all by myself. I didn't like that. And so I have memories of here being able to hear my parents' slippers shuffle around on the floor, the linoleum in our kitchen, and that was enough comfort for me. Or I even remember, this may sound strange, but I even remember hearing that noise as they would walk up and down the stairs and I'd hear their rings grab the, the, the railing on their way up and down the stairs. And as a young, again, as a young child, that was enough. That was all I needed to know that I wasn't by myself, that I wasn't alone, and that I was going to be okay. Darkness can be disorienting for us, can't it? The unknown that sits before us, whether it's past, present, or future, wrestling with the uncertain, wrestling with the unsure, Living in fear, it can terrify us. We all, we're looking for something, some, some hint of light, so to speak, 
some noise, something to tell us we're not alone and we're going to be okay. If you're paying attention, you know that Psalm 88 is filled with darkness. In fact, it's even the last word in English and in Hebrew, the language in which it was originally written. Darkness is where the psalm ends. Unlike most of the other psalms in, in, the, in the Bible that we have, where, where they speak of darkness and struggle, there's often a resolution, a, a final statement of, but I know everything is going to be okay. We don't get that here. From what I could tell, Psalm 38 might be the only comparable psalm that ends similarly. All the others end with some, some bright, shining light of hope and reason and acknowledgement that God is still here. But Psalm 88 ends in darkness. What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that a poem in the scriptures, a complete thought in and of themselves, end with the thought of darkness? What does it tell us about how we pray? What does it tell us about how we live? That's what I want to consider this morning. In fact, a, 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 a song lyrics that, that came to mind this week that I had to look up because I, I had no idea where they came from, um, words written by a man named Bruce Coburn, a singer-songwriter. He once wrote this in the middle of a song. He says, we need to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. There's a call for us in this text to struggle against the darkness, to face the darkness until hope breaks through. And I want to tell you there is indeed hope in these words. But at the same time, I want us to be honest that they do end in darkness, at least for this morning. Two things before we jump into the text more specifically that I want to make sure to make, make known. First, I, I read the, the heading there. It's, it, the typeset is going to be different in your scriptures. It comes before verse 1. It is there in the Hebrew text, but there's some, some measure of uncertainty in terms of how that actually ended up in the text. But those several of the Psalms have them, and they tend to be reliable in terms of explaining the context of where these came from. What those words tell us is that these were written by God's people for God's people. They're attributed to Haman the Ezraite. We know very little about him, but we know that he was part of the, the Levites, which was the, the clan of the people of God that were entrusted with the direction of the worship of God's people. These words were written in the context of the church, of the context of those who know God and trust him. The other thing I want to say, and you're going to see this play itself out as we work through the text itself, is that most of this psalm is written in very general terms. We're not told specifics about what this man was struggling with, what he was up against. We're not, given, we're not told why he struggled the way that he did. What's set before us is the reality of darkness was a part of his life. And the Spirit of God gave him this message to write down for us. So what does this tell us about what it means to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight? What, is this, what direction do we have in this text about how to pray and even how to live? Several things I want us to consider this morning. The, the first that the writer does in the, in the midst of this, the difficulty is he invites us to look at our experience. He invites us to look at the world in which we live and take stock of what is around us. Now the most dominant thing that shows up in this text is that he considers the experience of his own mortality. You know, we live in a world in which death is a part of our world. Death is a part of our world. Getting old, getting frail, not being able to do what we once were able to do, not being able to eat like we once ate. Getting old and dying is a part of the world in which we live. It's a part of our experience. 
and it certainly runs through Psalm 88. Scan with me, if you will, please. Begin, look at verse 3. As I said, he begins with the statement, My soul is full of troubles, for my life draws near to Sheol. He doesn't name the troubles. The, the word there is, is a very general term. It could mean evil is being done against me. It could mean injustice. It could mean something like calamity. He's acknowledging that life is not what he would want it to be. And then scan through the next few verses. He mentions in the second part of verse 3, Sheol. It's a, it's a word that, that is used in the scriptures to denote the place where people go when they die. Oftentimes in, in your Bible it may even be translated the grave, which shows up other places in this text. It speaks of that the death awaits all of us in this life. But jump to, jump to verse 4 and verse 6. He mentions several times here the pit. If you, if you walk through, he mentions in verse 5, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. He says it comes back to it again in verse 11. Again in verse 11, we see that strange name Abaddon, which actually is going to appear in the book of Revelation. It simply means place of destruction or destroying. You see, what he's describing is his own mortality. He's describing the darkness that he mentions in verse 12 and again in verse 18. As if to say, this is, what I, this is what my experience is. Whether myself, I'm physically, literally close to death or not, my experience is telling me that death is a part of my life right now. And I'm horrified at the thought of it. It is the reality. We look closely again, looking back to verse 4. Notice he also mentions this. He says, I'm a man who has no strength. We look, we look to... Um, Verse 9, and he mentions his eyes faltering in sorrow. And then again in verse, um, verse, verse 15, which may be a key to this text, he says, He afflicted and close to death from my youth up. He not only is describing and then speaking of the general realities of death in the world in which we live, but he's saying, physically, I feel it in my bones, that my body is affected by what I'm experiencing. My eyes from tears and sorrow and looking for answers and looking for help. My eyes are worn out. Afflicted from the youth up, he may have been given some malady that has put him in this place. But look again at verse 7 and 8. Not only does he speak of, of the, the, his own mortality, he says there, he says in the second part of verse 7, You're, you overwhelm me with all of your waves. And notice the third line in verse 8. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. The reality of death for him has put him in a place where he sees no end and no answer. The reality of death in his life is such that he feels stuck, that he feels trapped. This is where he is. He adds to this in verse 15. Um, I am helpless. You know that feeling, don't you? To be stuck, to, 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 to be surrounded on all sides. Bad things keep happening. The calamity keeps coming your way. How will it ever end? How will I get out of this? He's honest about his experience. In, in some ways, he's taking inventory of his life. About seven years ago, my family and I were living in the western suburbs of Kansas City, and we were packing up our home to move here so we could start the RUF, Reformed University Fellowship Campus Ministry, and be a part of this church as it got underway. Moving is a humbling thing. Moving is a humbling thing, especially if your friends help you move, because they see all of your stuff. Now, that probably won't come as a shock to those of you who know me well. I've got a lot of books. 
Somehow I keep accumulating them. Shelves and shelves of books, but that's not what's most embarrassing. It's more the things like, yes, we moved with three record players. Some of them may not even work, and they're still in our garage. Garden tools that have worked in the past. Pieces of clothing that hold sentimental value that I don't want to let go of. You, you know what I'm talking about, I think. Just pretend if you don't, if you don't want to admit it. <laughs> Moving is a humbling experience because people see your quirks. They see your weirdness. They see the things that are sentimental to you and they wonder about your sanity. Record, like I said, record players, drums, etc. All this stuff. And when we were getting ready to move, I thought, I don't know, what, I don't know how this is going to go. But a deacon in our church, a good friend, it, having heard me express some measure of hesitation at this moment, actually one time sat me down and said, basically said to me, John, let us help you. He said, we all got that stuff. And this is even before I even said most of this. He just said to me, we've all got all that stuff. We know what it's like. And we love you and we're here to help you. Taking inventory of our lives is what the psalmist does. This is a part of the hymn book, the prayer book of God's people, because we're invited to do that together, to look at our mortality, to look at our limitations, even to admit those moments when we feel stuck, to live honestly together in community is what we're called to. Now, I want to acknowledge this is counterintuitive to us, right? Because much of our world, even many in, within Christianity, would say we face our troubles by doubling down and fighting harder and pretending they don't exist. To pray more so that maybe they'll just go away and we won't have to think about it anymore. That's what our world wants to tell us. Put your best foot forward all the time. Live by your resume, your CV. Make sure everything's, every, all I's are dotted and all T's are crossed. That everything looks great. You put your strengths forward and let's not talk about our weaknesses. And yet the writer says, in the midst of darkness, I need to face the darkness. I need to face my mortality. I need to face my stuckness. And in the context that he's giving us of prayer, three times he mentions in this text that he's praying. He's crying out to God. Prayer, you see, is not a declaration of the way things are. Or excuse me. Prayer is not a declaration of the way things are of the way thing sorry I jumped lost myself for, for a second think about it this way prayer is let's see if I can get it right prayer is not our declaration of the way things are that's what I'm trying to say prayer is not us telling God God this is what is this is reality prayer is our crying out of our need prayer is actually looking at the way things actually are whether we have solutions whether we have answers or not and crying out to God in those moments for help. Admitting our needs, whether we're doing it together or so, quietly, silently by ourselves. It's, it's acknowledging that we have no answers. That we find ourselves in this place of need. And so he says three times in the psalm, I'm crying out to you, O Lord. I'm crying out because I have need. He's facing his experience. But interestingly, he's also facing his own loneliness. A few years ago, uh, this past week I was in Dallas, Texas with my job. Um, RUF has training twice a year, so in December and in July um, I go to another location with a bunch of other campus ministers and staff and interns. And we spend the week reflecting on college ministry, studying the scriptures together, praying together, playing together, eating together, all kinds of good stuff. 
One of the, one of the um, interesting moments or one of the most helpful times in these weeks is that we're assigned prayer groups that stick together over the course of time. So as long as, as, long as my prayer groups, as long as each of us stay with RUF, we, we gather twice a year and pray. We catch up over what's going on in our lives. It's a little bit strange because I'm getting to know wives and children that I've never met before and may never meet. But it's like we're best friends because their husbands share, we share with one another what's going on in our lives. A couple of years ago, um, as this past week as I was reflecting on a couple of years ago, um, I remembered uh, December of 2016. It stands out to me because 2016 was a big year for my family and I. January started out with me getting an MRI because my body was doing some strange things. I was shuffling as I walked and had a tremor. And my doctor was concerned that there might be something that a brain scan would show up. It was not that, but a month and a half later, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, young onset Parkinson's disease. It was a, it was a moment in our lives that we won't forget. It was one of those things that, that, and while we received great, we received amazing help and comfort and consolation and help here, it's one of those things that's a life-changing moment for us because this is part of who I am now. Not that it's defining by any means, but it is certainly part of who I am. Later that, that year, in the middle of that year, in the summer, a good friend of ours that we'd walked with for over 10 years from our previous church died of cancer. She had fought cancer far longer than anyone had expected her to survive, but she had finally succumbed to it that summer. And I'm sure there are multiple other things happening, but those are the two things that stand out to you, to me. So that December, when my RUF campus ministers and I gathered for our prayer group, and I started to share about my year, I couldn't talk. I just began to weep. And tears just flowed, and I tried, and I tried to catch myself, and I tried to drink some coffee or some water, and nothing came out. It was weird. I mean, I'm in a circle of guys, and, and again, we were honest with one another, and it wasn't the first time anybody cried, but let's just say I just put the pedal to the metal and kept going. It was odd. It was a strange experience for me. But a good friend sitting next to me simply put his hand on my shoulder and prayed. And that meant the world to me. But even in that moment, and even today when I think about that, I'm like, that was strange, John. It was strange because I tried, and I knew that I could trust these men with, with, with what I was wrestling with. And at the time, I didn't, even, I didn't even put together all of what I just recounted for you, actually. I just knew that the tears kept flowing and flowing and flowing. I didn't have any words to say. Having them pray for me in that moment was, was wonderful. And yet, even then, that weirdness points me to the text. The weirdness of feeling like something is happening to me that I can't explain, and I don't love the, the being this vulnerable in front of these people. What are they going to say? What are they going to do? When we're in moments of suffering and pain and frustration and uncertainty, that's, it can take us there. And so the writer of the psalm addresses his own loneliness, doesn't he? Look at verse 8 with me again in the first part. What does he say? He says in verse 8, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. You wonder if he's got a physical affliction, if there's something wrong with him. He's looking out and he's saying, people don't want to hang out with me. And maybe because something's about my body makes them uncomfortable because they don't know what to say or what to do. And maybe that they're tired of hearing me tell them how sad I am all the time. Some of you know this reality, don't you? I don't mean to laugh at you. I'm saying, this is, let's be honest about this reality of us. You know, the person that always that has never has any good news, that is always in darkness, we don't always know what to say, we don't always know what to do, and so we inadvertently keep our distance. 
he's talking about is a sense of shame, isn't it? It can be difficult to run toward the brokenhearted to spend time with those who are chronically ill. He experiences that reality. But then let's look at verse 18. Again, he says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Or as an older translation ends that, the psalmist says, darkness is my only friend. This is this reality of pain, of loneliness, isn't it? It comes the rea- with the reality of being feeling rejected even by those who love us. Those who are closest to us would keep their distance in these moments. Again, what does the writer instruct us to do? Well, he wrote it down for us so that thousands of years later, we might hear his reflection on the pain of his loneliness. You see, he's instructing us, he's guiding us, he's calling us to face even our loneliness. It can be a daunting thing to invite someone into your suffering because you don't know how they're going to react. In those moments of grief, of sorrow, of sadness, of confusion, what are they going to say? What are they going to think of me? Some of you are really good at that. And others of us don't always know how to do that. I wanted to give us some, some sort of practical counsel um, with this. And so I have some thoughts here. And I'm going to try to see if I can get this out in a way that makes sense to us. But in the midst of living in, in community together and living in where we want to be known and we want to strive to be known, let me encourage you. When, when you know that someone in your life is suffering and struggling with, whether it's physical malady, whether it's calamity in their life, whether it's work frustrations, whatever it may be, grief, loss of a loved one, whatever it may be, let me invite you to gently pursue them, to text, to write, to call. The thing I don't want you to do, I don't want us to do, is to ignore them. Because even if you don't know the words to say, most of the time, a just a gentle, I don't know what to say, can go a long way to someone who's struggling because they feel the shame and the pain of their own loneliness. Please, please don't keep your distance. But at the same time, please give those who are struggling the space to share at their own pace. Some of us, some of us are really good at dumping it all out on the table all at once. Other of us, like me, are not. And so it takes us time. It doesn't mean we don't want you to care. It doesn't mean we, we don't value your prayers or your questions or your concern. It simply means we may just need some time to figure it out ourselves and to get our head around it ourselves. And we love that. So gently pursue, but give the space. And the third thing I want to say along these lines is, is simply this. Be ready to sit in silence or be ready to do something that has absolutely nothing to do with the calamity that they're experiencing. They, they may need a distraction. They may need a stupid movie. They may need a walk in the conza. They may need pizza. <laughs> they may need a meal. Use your, use your best judgment, but be ready even to sit with them in silence because they may need that. Beloved, what we're called to is to face our loneliness with honesty. The third thing, though, that I want us to direct our attention to, which, which is, a, is a theme, if you will, that runs through our psalm, is he invites us to run to our God. Notice again how the psalm actually begins. It begins addressed to God himself. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Again in verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. 
And then in verse 13, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer, prayer comes before you. You hear what he's saying? He's saying in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of not having an answer, he runs to the Lord in prayer to speak to God. And even more than that, notice how, he, how what we learn of God as it is described in the passage. Again, look at verses 6 through 8 with me. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Your wrath, in verse 7, lies heavily upon me. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. In verse 10, he begins to ask questions. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And he goes on from there. Do you hear what he's acknowledging? In the midst of the darkness, he's crying out to the one who's in charge of it all. The word we use for that is that he is sovereign. That there's nothing that happens in this man's life that is apart from God's control. There's absolutely nothing. What we believe about God, our theology, actually matters here. It matters because he needs to cry out. He has no answers. He has no explanation. And so he cries out to the one who is in charge, the one who is over all these things. We might note as an aside, we might note in verses 7 and 16, the word wrath shows up. In verse 7 he says, your wrath lies heavy upon me. Now again, the psalm is written in general enough terms. We, we don't know if he's believing at this moment that he has done something wrong and is being punished by God, experiencing God's wrath in that way. It's possible because many parts of the Old Testament speak of God's discipline of his people, of God's shaping them to be more like Jesus as, as, as part of his wrath because he sees the rebellion in us and the rejection of his authority and he wants to shave those things out from us, but we're simply not sure. But it's part of the reality of this man's life. He's crying out to God because he believes that God is in control even though this man has no understanding. I wonder if you've seen the movie Sandlot. It's been a while, so I'm doing this from memory. Sandlot is one of a group of kids playing backyard baseball. And if you haven't seen it, it's really brilliant, especially for the summertime and the baseball season, if you're a baseball fan or not. Uh, but it's about this group of kids. And, and one of the, the storylines that happens in the movie is the kids, through a bunch of circumstances, they lose their baseball over the fence of, of this unknown neighbor. And the unknown neighbor has this giant mastiff named Goliath. And the kids are terrified. They've never met the neighbor. They've never seen him. They've only kind of seen him through the trees and through the windows. He sits in his house. He doesn't come out. And all they know about this man is his dog. And so, you know, half the movie, they, when, when they get the ball in the backyard, they're like, what do we do? We're going to die. You know, and I think, if I remember right, they kind of draw lots to see who's going to go get the ball as they try to figure out who's going to get the ball back because they need to get the ball back. And you, you get the sense, like, they think they're sending their good friend to his death, potentially, because they don't know what's on the other side of the fence. And of course, as the movie continues, they, they meet the man and he's gracious to them. But it takes them meeting him, coming face to face with him, running to him in order to find him for who he really is. Much of us judge God from a distance. And we are scared of him. We make assumptions about who he is and about what he might do to us if we come close. And so we keep him at that distance. But look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. He cries out to God, O oh oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Do you know why he can pray that? That only makes sense. It only makes sense to think that God would be hiding from us, to feel that, if God were not only sovereign but also personal. 
if you are not someone that would desire to engage with the creatures that he has made to be in relationship with us, only then would it make sense. God is not simply this being that's distant, that's far off, that is waiting to crush us. He is not the one who's waiting to crush us at any moment's notice. You see, we assume we know him, and we assume we know what we don't like about him. And so when things happen in our lives, we get, frustrate, we get frustrated, we get scared, we run the other direction from him. Beloved, let your frustrations, hurts, questions with God drive you to him and not away from him. Let them drive you to him. We, we've heard the psalmist ask legitimate questions. It feels like you're running away from me, God. Why? You want me to praise you? You made me to praise you? Can I praise you in death? Does that even make sense? He's crying out to God out of his uncertainty, out of the lack of logic as he understands it. He doesn't run away. He runs towards God. There's nothing in your life, nothing in your life that will happen apart from God's hand in it. I can't explain it all. Some of you have very legitimate intellectual questions about your faith. Please ask them. If you, if you can't find help by yourself, talk to me. Talk to one of the elders here. Talk to somebody until you can find somebody that can help you wrestle through the answers, that you, the questions that you have. We don't need to be scared of our questions. We need to run to the Lord, though. That's the call before us. We need to face our mortality. We need to face our loneliness. Beloved, well, we need to face our God. I don't know if you're familiar with the TV show The Office. I was reminded, though, this week of an episode in which the, the main character, Michael Scott, had promised college education to a group of third graders that he met, because that's kind of how he works. He's awkward and he's weird, and that's what the whole show is all about. But sometime in his past, he's a you know, there's a thing in the paper about a local businessman who pledges to, to pay for college for this group of third graders. Well, they're getting ready to graduate. He hasn't made the millions that he thought he would make, and he's got no money to give them. And it's a pretty awkward experience to watch him go to the classroom and tell them that he doesn't have any money for them. But at one point during the episode, in, in one of the on-camera shots, he says, of all the empty promises that I've made in my life, this one was by far the most generous. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if Christianity feels like that to some of you. I wonder if we live that way. We make grand promises to people, to one another, to ourselves. Grand, glorious, beautiful, wonderful promises. But they're empty, aren't they? Because we bump into reality, and we bump into the darkness, and we realize, I don't have an answer for this. And it doesn't work that way. We tell people, if you just get married, life will be perfect, and it'll be awesome, and you won't be lonely anymore, and life will be grand. We tell people, and we believe ourselves, if you just parent your kids this way, if you just send your kids to this school or that school or keep them at home, if you just do this one thing, Everything will turn out great. No problems whatsoever. We tell people if you don't drink or if you do drink, life will be fine for you. There won't be any problems. If you live in this town or that town, if you live in the country, if you live in the suburbs, if you live in the city, we create all kinds of laws and make all kinds of promises in the name of Jesus to say, just do this and life will be great. We can make those promises to other people. We can put those expectations on other people. And we can put those expectations upon ourselves, can't we? And then the darkness comes and we don't know what to do. 
make empty promises. Assess your own heart. Are you living by some promise that is not in Scripture? Because the reality is that darkness is a part of our world. It simply is. There are things happening in some of your lives I can't even begin to explain. There are tensions between parents and children, between spouses, between children and parents, between siblings that are painful, that are long-lasting. There are things that some of you are struggling with that you've struggled with for years and years and years and years, and they don't seem to go away. I can't promise that they're going to go away anytime soon. Where Soul Media takes us, though, is to this place where we realize that the Scripture's honest about that. The Scripture's honest about, as much as we think it presents this, this way to find a perfect, happy, perfect life, that will know no troubles, it actually does the very opposite of that. And it says, we need to be honest about the world we live in because there is pain, there is frustration, there is hurt. You see, we presume that we were made for comfort, that it is a natural right, personal peace and affluence. We believe that that is to be ours if we just do the right things all the time. And anything which stands against our comfort is an absolute moral evil. But the scriptures tell us something else. They say there is darkness in this world. It's possible that you or someone else coming close to you may be filled with darkness and that it may stay that way for a time. There is yet hope, but it's hope in the midst of darkness. As I said, the psalm ends with the word darkness very intentionally. The beauty, though, is that the Bible doesn't end with darkness. Because the prophet Isaiah said at one point, those walking in darkness have seen a great light. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's the light. The psalm ends in darkness, but the Bible doesn't. You see, Jesus, the one who walked on this earth, embraced our experience of immortality and limitations. He was beaten, his skin was torn from his body, he was put to death on a cross, and he rose again. Jesus knew loneliness. Because at his time of need, his closest friends were falling asleep and then denying him a few hours later, denying that they even had anything to do with him. They scattered, the scriptures tell us. He knew the loneliness. Jesus himself bore the wrath of God for us, the scriptures tell us. Because we couldn't bear it ourselves. It would crush us. Beloved, there is hope in the darkness. Jesus is the hope in the darkness.